I think pastors have had to navigate a number of crises that they never anticipated and, and most were not trained for. Mm. And that comes on, it starts to pile on, as it were, the, the ordinary challenges and struggles and sufferings of pastoral ministry. People are looking at me to, to set the standard. You know, it's kind of like the preachers, the town clock. We set our watch by is like, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. If, if the Lord has called us to ministry, um, He's called us to suffer. And so we, we ought to think that it's part of being united to Christ. It's, that's easy to say around the table. It's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard when, when people are after you. The pastor uh, needs to uh, walk as an example, but he's not an example of perfection. He's also an example of <clears throat> believing the gospel. Welcome to The Pastor and the Modern World, a podcast from Westminster Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Peter Lilbag, president here at Westminster. Over the next few episodes, we'll be exploring together a new book from Westminster Seminary Press called The Pastor and the Modern World. In this short book, three accomplished scholars, William Edgar, R. Kent Hughes, and Alfred Poirier, have each contributed a chapter exploring the challenges of today and answers from the past, all with the intent of helping the church minister for Christ today's culture. Join me as we talk about the pastor and the modern world. Well, Scott, our apologist, and Todd, our church historian, and uh, John, our leader of our pastoral theological department. What a great privilege to be with you. Oliphant, Ruster, and Curry. That's a great, almost sounds like a law office or something, right? You know, but it's a theological department at Westminster. As we get started, we're going to go back uh, in our conversation over the pastor in the modern world, really back to the ancient church in our third article. Alfred Poirier, who is our third occupant of the uh, Boyer chair, gave his lecture on uh, the, a wonderful piece that comes from Gregory of Nazianzus we're going to look at. But this may be a good time, uh, Todd, for me to share the, the biblical text that gives us church historians job security. So, you know, we can, maybe we can get without apologists and Pat, but you can't do without church historians. So this is what Hebrews 13 says, starting at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, to do that, you need to have church historians. I mean, it's just all there is to it, right? So there you go. Of course, it goes on to say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So in looking back at church history, uh, we are being reminded that God has raised a people who taught the Word of God, and their teaching uh, has made an impact now, we're not to imitate them because we can never be like anybody else, but we're to imitate their faith. Mm. There's something they believe mm. that is really dramatically important. And so uh, as we begin, uh, we're reminded that Alfred Poirier had turned our attention in his article to the second oration by Gregory of Nazianzus in defense of his flight to Pontus. Mm. So I'm going to turn to you, Todd, and I'm going to ask you first, Tell us who Alfred Poirier is, your church historian, but he's a, you can talk about his life a bit. And then secondly, because many of us are new to this individual, we've probably heard his name, but we don't know a lot about his life. So two questions at the same time. First, 
Who's Alfred? Alfred Poirier. And then why would he want to turn our attention to Gregory of Nazianzus in terms of his life? What makes him significant? Well, my, my encounter with um, Dr. Poirier first was through his writing, actually. Um, uh, the Peacemaking Pastor is what I knew him for um, as I was reading that um, in the early 2000s. Um, and at the same time, uh, what you get in that Peacemaking Pastor is the importance of counseling, the importance of the close application of the Word of God, not just from the pulpit, um, but in private. And that's, that's one way to think about church discipline, actually. Um, to be a disciple is to be disciplined, to be trained in the Word, to learn. And so counseling in that regard requires the application of the Word of God to the life in a very particular situation. And so The Peacemaking Pastor was a very helpful book talking about the issue of brokenness in the church, the need to deal with sin, and the need to deal with error and all sorts of things. Um, and so that was my first encounter with Alfred. And as I've come to know him better over the, uh, the last few years working on this um, faculty, it, it's just it's, it struck me time and again his uh, winsomeness in the application of wisdom. Um, he was a pastor for 36 years. Uh, between He was ordained in 1982, and uh, he came to Westminster in 2018. Um, the last charge that he had, I believe he served in Billingson from 1992 through 2018. So you're dealing with a man who has been in the trenches, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, not just for the three to five or eight year period, but uh, over the long haul. Um, he's also uh, been involved in, in certain national conversations. Um, he's worked, done some work with, the, I believe, the Alliance Defense Fund. Um, specifically the Blackstone Fellowship or the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, and he has served in a variety of capacities working with them on a variety of topics, many of which include things like um, the LGBTQ issues and how that impacts churches and how it impact how we should think about it biblically um, as Christians, and then he's talking to Christian lawyers. Mm. Um, so he's, he's played, uh, he's had influence in a variety of different ways. Um, my family knows him personally um, and his wife as well, um, in part because my children uh, are uh, piano students of, his, of Trudy. So um, it, it's been a delight to get to know him. And I would just simply say that um, I've, I've appreciated that aspect of his work. In The Peacemaking Pastor, he says this. Um, he talks about the ministry of reconciliation that the, the importance of reconciling Christians and each other within the context of the gospel. And he says this on page 88. As pastors and church leaders then, we need to be and must be intimately a part of the lives of our people. We cannot flee from reality. We cannot fear involvement. We cannot avoid conflict. For we do not want to preach and counsel mere words. We want to preach and counsel the living word. When our words are disconnected from the hardships of life, from the conflicts of heart and home, we become mere purveyors of knowledge, not pastors. Mm. I think that that little paragraph <clears throat> almost tells you what you need to know about uh, Alfred's concerns in the book, The Peacemaking Pastor. And that parallels um, this other pastor from the fourth century that we're talking about today as well, and that Alfred mentioned here, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, who famously remarks in his second oration, quote, the goal of our art, of our skill, of our practice, the goal of our art is to provide the soul with wings, 
to rescue it from the world and give it to God, and to watch over that which is in His image. If it abides, to take it by the hand. If it is in danger, or restore it. If ruined, to make it to make Christ dwell in the heart by the Spirit, and in short, to deify and bestow heavenly bliss upon one who belongs to the heavenly host. So you see in both, in their own way, um, the goal of drawing people closer to Christ. And I think that's part of the connection point in their concern for what was historically called care of souls. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the art of a pastor and a shepherd. But in the context of this period, um, you're talking about um, Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, he's born in 329, uh, four years after the Council of Nicaea. He actually uh, presides as uh, over, um, over the the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then after he um, steps down and retires from the office of bishop, he dies around 390. So you're dealing with somebody in the middle of the fourth century. Christianity is a new religion as a tolerated religion within the state. It's not entirely clear what that means in the Roman context. Um, are the Is the church and the state, are they the same things? So goes the empire, so goes the church, so goes the church, so goes the empire. That's the middle of that time frame. In the middle of that time frame, in the middle of that li- of his life, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was trained at the Academy of Athens with some other great theologians of this period, the Cappadocian Fathers is who they're typically termed, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory, and then Basil. Um, these three are known as the Cappadocian Fathers who wrote so much on uh, not only the Holy Spirit, but also on, the, on Christ, um, defending it against Arianism and all sorts of things. So he's a tremendous resource for Orthodox Trinitarianism, but he's also a wonderful resource for pastoral counsel. So, and that's why we've turned to him today, but he's, he certainly played an important role in his time. Okay, let me ask this question then. As I recall, uh, his flight was a flight almost from ministry, and you mm-hmm. might say he's kind of a Christian Jonah in some sense, running away from a call. And it seems, as I recall here, that he's answering Three questions in his oration. Why did he flee the ministry? Mm-hmm. Number two, what does a pastor do and what kind of man should a pastor be? And finally, who is the man worthy of this call? So three great questions. And I think for those that are not uh, church historians and maybe say, I've not studied a lot about this particular century Scott, have you ever had the, the feeling that maybe I should run from ministry and get away from this job? How about you, John? Have you ever felt like that? Yeah. This is yeah. a universal, I mean, let's be honest for a moment. Is there, you don't have to give the details, but has there been a time in your life where you said, this is tough stuff, what am I involved with? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we, when we see our own sin, we recognize that mm. how dare I stand in front of somebody and talk to them about Christ or preach the word to them because I'm just not, Worthy, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, you can't, you can't model me. Mm-hmm. But we all know that, don't we? Paul was the chief of sinners, and he really was, and he, and yet he was. The Lord used him to be an apostle. But the existential crisis can certainly happen, and probably does happen yeah. with most ministers if they're honest. Yeah. yeah. So, John, mm-hmm. I've been hearing that there's quite a remarkable number of cases, what they call pastoral burnout. People's like. I'm done. I'm yeah. going to get. I'm going to be an insurance salesman. Yeah. I'm going to go work at the freight docks. I'm going to start a home business. I'm not doing ministry anymore. And that seems to be epidemic. Is that a fair assumption? Well, I think it's certainly become um, much more uh, prominent and pointed in the last few years. I think pastors have had to navigate a number of crises that 
they never anticipated and, and most were not trained for. Mm. And that comes on, it starts to pile on, as it were, the, the ordinary challenges and struggles and sufferings of pastoral ministry. So I think you're right that we're actually seeing um, uh, a surge in a, what they call pastoral burnout and guys who just think they can't take what ministry requires anymore, particularly in the last few years. And COVID had a big impact on that, I assume. Yeah, I think that was, a, I think there's a number of issues uh, related to the, the COVID crisis that uh, I think took us all by surprise. Um, maybe there's room actually, I think, down the road for some kind of think tank on what did we learn and uh, what, what did the church learn? Because I think there was a confluence of issues uh, that came together that pastors, sessions, uh, congregations just weren't equipped for. And I think it surfaced things that we didn't know existed. That's great. So going back to the historical context, uh, Todd, why did this early brother Gregory say, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm not going to minister? What was going on in his life? He didn't have COVID to face. He didn't have the modern stresses. But here we are talking about the church and the modern world. And we're saying what we can look back at him as relevant for what we're facing today. Uh, that's right. The context is, is different. Um, you know, sometimes people, you've probably heard the expression bandered about, about history, you know, history repeats itself, that kind of thing. Those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it or something like that. History may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme, it seems. Um, and maybe that's because of the, the, the human nature, the sinful human nature that we bear, um, that there's just a, a horizon of opportunities there. And in this, in Gregory of Nanzianzus' day, I mean, no, he... He, he didn't have uh, the same outbreaks of plague and other things that we might associate with that period. Um, but he did have a state, an instance where politically the Roman government went from being in favor of Christians, restoring their property if they'd been lost in the, in the persecutions in the early 4th century, <clears throat> to the point where there was a hiccup in the middle where one of, uh, one of Gregory's classmates of the, at the academy happened to be an emperor's son. Julian, and he apostatized. He was a Christian, and he apostatized and wanted to take the Roman Empire back to paganism. This was one of his classmates, and so he's speaking at, as a he's a speaking representing the church, but he's also speaking to someone who he knew personally. He's also speaking to someone who's the emperor. And Roman conceptions of power uh, do not admit of much dissent <laughs> uh, in the way that they prosecute things. And so his times were were volatile in their own right. Arianism was, uh, just because a church meets and settles an issue as, a, as important as the creed, doesn't mean there's universal reception. Mm -hmm. And so the, the fourth century, even though a decision was made in 325, as we all know as pastors and theologians, just because the church decides something doesn't mean the issue is settled. Mm -hmm. uh, it mm -hmm. took 60, 70 it's years. It's inflection point or we're the next stage or what are we going to do in light of this decision? That's right. Mm -hmm. The emperors throughout the fourth century, even while they claimed to be Christian, many of them tended Arian. And so those that are standing mm -hmm. for the faith are finding themselves in the... Remind in us the, what Arianism is, um, by the well, way. Well, Arianism, is for, is, uh, the simplest way to boil it down is to what was said among street children in, in, in um, Egypt. Uh, in Alexandria, was uh, Arian, Arius was a, a presbyter uh, that was instructing people in the faith, and he was teaching children to say there was a time when Christ was not, um, and so that the Christ so he becomes was not the, eternal. Then. He's not eternal, and therefore, whatever the, whatever the second person is, it's not fully divine in the same way. 
So they're banging out the language of what this means and what are its implications. And Gregory is defending Nicene Orthodoxy. Um, and so how does this make him run then? Well, it, it, as a pastor, um, uh, one, day, one, one instance would be a great example. Um, his <clears throat> church, um, where he was preaching, and his, he was in the later stages of life, where one church where he was preaching, it was a small church of people who were committed to Nicene Orthodoxy, and they were beset by a mob of young Arians and men and women throwing stones at him while he's in the pulpit. Mm. Wow. So that's volatile. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's not exactly the same thing as what we experience now, but his social pressure was a very different thing altogether. And so what the challenge of the fourth century was there were people saying they are Christians, but they don't hold to the Christ of Scripture, mm. and they are willing to persecute others who differ. So it's it's a volatile time. It's not just a settle. Don't think just because there's a, a a creedal declaration in 325 and another conciliar action in 381 that the intervening period was just so. Would smooth. it be fair to say that Gregory took that affront while he's preaching the stones that may not have heard him, but he said, "I can't stand this. Their people are attacking me and my church." I'm getting out of here. Well, he was certainly that was at the later part of his life. At the beginning of his ministry, where he was worried about fleeing from fleeing from the ministry was, uh, you know, the fourth century Christianity had a very high standard of holiness. And uh, the, to take that call to the ministry seriously means that you are the one that is before them, before their face all the time. And they, and hit that overwhelmed him. Mm. Um, and if you were academic and any sort of nobleman at that time frame, the best thing you could have would be a long study break somewhere. Um, so he fled up into the re what was then called Bithynia and Pontus regions um, around the Black Sea. Um, so it was a crisis point for him. You know, the, the call he took the call of the ministry seriously, and yet at the same time felt totally <clears throat> inadequate for it. You know, this is the same experience of others. I mean, Martin Luther, for example, trembling when he give, performs the first uh, Lord's Supper uh, that he did was was just overwhelmed uh, with his inadequacy. And I think that. That point, I think we can resonate okay, with. Okay, so just just pause for a moment, guys. You know, here we are. We've got a, a young man who says, people are looking at me to, to set the standard. You know, it's kind of like the preachers, the town clock. We set our watch by his life. I can't do that. I'm not good enough. On the other hand, an older guy who's been in trying to do ministry, <clears throat> being faithful, instead of the Lord blessing him, people are coming and they're throwing stones at him. We may not get stones thrown yet, but we get words and attacks of all kinds. What kind of advice do you give to a younger or older guy, John, who's facing like, I can't set the yeah. standard for my people. Yeah. I'm not holy enough. I, yeah. I got to get out of here. Yeah. What would you say to a guy like that? I think maybe one of the temptations is to actually <clears throat> is to dial down the the call to be an example. And when when guys are feeling like that, we can try to help, comfort, and well intentioned dial it down. I don't think we should do that. You know, Paul says to Timothy, you're to set an example for the believers. And I think he's building on his own example to Timothy there, but, you know, he'll say things to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I do think the pastor uh, needs to uh, walk as an example, but he's not an example of perfection. He's also an example of <clears throat> believing the gospel. And so I think as we take on the responsibilities of our office, which is to uh, call people to imitate us as we imitate Christ. It's as we imitate Christ. 
And as we're imitating Christ, we depend on Christ for the gospel for us. So I think what pastors need is, uh, is to go back to a previous conversation, uh, we need to be uh, drinking in Christ as he's clothed in his gospel, to use Calvin's phrase, for us. And I think to do that, we need uh, a, the community of believers, a community of believers around us that when, if I could use it, put it this way, when we get inside our own head, are able to preach Christ to us. So I think we need the call to be an example, but we also need to realize that we're, we're examples of those who are in Christ, and we're, we're resting in Christ ourselves. And so we need the gospel for pastors. That's good. And then the idea of a seasoned minister having rocks thrown at him, that sounds like a systematic theologian apologist. <laughs> How do you as a, as a believer going through a hard time where there's controversy is sometimes part of our calling? How do you find strength to face that and not just run? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think one thing we have to be sure about is that the Word of God is true and powerful. And um, so fortunately, none of this depends on me or my weaknesses, um, which are there, or even my sinfulness, which is there. Um, but if, if the Lord has called us to ministry, um, He's called us to suffer. And so we, we ought to think that it's part of being united to Christ. <laughs> you know, Paul even talks about suffering as a gift. <clears throat> it's not one you'd want for Christmas or your birthday. It's not what you'd ask for. Um, but it's going to come because the suffering servant suffered, and so we're his servants and we're meant to suffer as well. It's, that's easy to say around the table. It's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard when, when people are after you. And, and, and um, if you... If you Somebody said, if you, if you just focus on your navel, you're, you're really, your ministry is going to be done. So you've got to turn outward. You've got to see Christ. You've got to understand your call. You've got to recognize that the Word of God is more powerful than all of this, that the gates of hell won't prevail against any of it. And if the Lord's called you to it, you do it even to the point where the stones might take your life, but you've been, been faithful to the end. And that's easier said than done, but... Christ gives us the grace needed to do those things. That's He's great. Called us to the path. I just had the opportunity for the seminary's journal, Unio Cum Cristo. We're going to be doing an issue on global Anglicanism. So I had the opportunity, uh, you know, the passing of J.I. Packer and John Stott. And so I was interviewing uh, the uh, former Archbishop of Sydney. Uh, his name is Peter Jensen. And he's very complimentary of the seminary, which is always nice to hear. But they said, well, you led more college. Uh, what do you say to young people thinking about ministering? So I have three questions I ask. Number one, you want to come to seminary? Are you doing any ministry? If you're not doing any ministry now, why are you coming to train for ministry? You don't even know whether you want to do this work. You don't even know what it is. What ministry are you doing? Two, you're going somewhere. Who's going to train you? What are they going to give you? What are their abilities? What are their emphasis? What's their theology? And this one got my attention, which is what you just said, Scott. And as thirdly, are you prepared to bear the cross? Ministry is a tough calling. Mm -hmm. You're going to be facing conflict, and you need to be grounded in Jesus Christ, ready for Christ's sake to bear the cross. It may be words. It may be conflict. It may be struggle. It may be stones. It may be worse for what we're facing. So that was really clear. But then, the Todd, that brings us back to what you're talking about, which is he runs... And so basically what he does is he takes an extended sabbatical. Is that fair to say? Yes. He said, I'm a young pastor. I need a sabbatical. I'm going to Pontus in the mountains, right? Well, the part of this story is the fact that, I mean, Gregory, 
Okay, so Gregory was the son of another Gregory, and his father was a bishop. Okay. All right. So Gregory was ordained to, to, to ministry by his dad. Um, and so he had a crisis of, is this really what I want to do? Am I really fit for it? Is this the way that the direction I see my life going? All these sorts of things. And so he leaves in uh, around Christmas of 361, and he comes back in Easter of 362. So he had to go wrap his head around, you know, he took, so, he so took one of his... So that about six months then? That he uh, yeah, away? probably about four you know, four months, four months okay, or so. Right. I mean, he needed he that's, needed that's some, not an unreasonable pastoral yeah. sabbatical, no, right? <laughs> yeah, but he left what? What is that? 400, 500 miles on foot? I mean, that's 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 pretty committed to. I don't need to be here. <laughs> uh, I you know whether I don't know if he if he, he probably sailed, but uh, to get to some <clears> of those ports. But the point is, is that this was not a light endeavor. Um, and, and it really was a crisis point for him to, to wrap his head around. What does it mean for me as a, you know, at that time, I believe he was about 32. Um, so what does it mean for him to be uh, a, a bishop? And he's seen, you know, children of pastors, they have seen up front what Christians can be like when they're not happy. Mm-hmm. And they've seen it on their family. They've seen it on their dads. They've seen it on their elders. Same yeah. thing for children of elders. Yeah, our, for our former yeah. professor uh, here at Westminster, Claire Davis, said, we believe in total depravity at Westminster. Mm-hmm. So much we practice it every day. <laughs> and I think a pastor says, yeah, I, I mm-hmm. see this doctrine empirically lived out from time to time. You would really have to be committed to grace, wouldn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so so yeah. what, what you see, if, if we can frame the question in that sort of circumstance, you've got a young man called to ministry, He's, he understands he needs to live a holy life. He's coming at it from not someone who's coming from outside ministry with some romantic ideal. He's coming at it from being the son of a bishop. He knows in this time frame, bishops were involved over many churches, and they were involved neck deep in everyone's problems. And that kind of thing probably comes home with you. Um, so there's a side of it where Gregory has, I think, a view towards, he knows what's going to cost him in the ministry. Mm-hmm. Some of it's the issue of his own personal holiness, but some of it's the crisis of the real, I mean, who wouldn't want to go spend six months, four months on a beach somewhere um, in the middle of church, possible church conflict? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's, so it's understandable in many ways. But I think what's also interesting is, um, you know, the better question then is what brought him back? Yes, yeah, so here's the question. Huh. I, I'm remembering uh, here in the article that uh, Alfred uh, wrote, he said, somehow Luke 5.31 had an impact on him. And, and I'll read that here. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Mm. Somehow pastoral care of the sick and sin overwhelmed him and that was part of what brought him back. Is that fair to say? That is. Uh, the question is not about his own need. It's about. Uh, it's also about the need of others. And so um, as he reflected on that and what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant for the grace of God to be active, um, I, think that's really the, I think that's really the point. It's that the care of souls is part of the pastoral ministry. Um, sermons are very important, of course. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. <clears throat> But care of souls is, is, is a tremendous part of this ministry. Um, and I think today, perhaps, as it's been talked about on this table, people don't, re- pastors sometimes might, you know, young pastors might not realize how much of their life is going to be spent 
counseling people through sin. You know, it's it, you will meet stubbornness face to face in your own heart and as you look in the mirror and in the heart of others. Yeah. And to apply the gospel well is going to take um, faith in God. In fact, as I remember Alfred giving this lecture, because mm -hmm. I had the joy to be present as he did it, he, mm -hmm. he says, you know, Gregory argued that the cure of the body, which a physician does, is really hard work. The cure of the soul is far more difficult, yeah. far more challenging. But on the other hand, it's far more significant mm -hmm. because you're not healing a person to get five more years of life. Yeah. You're touching his eternal destiny. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment of what uh, Alfred was emphasizing? Yes, the it is laborious and hard. Um, you know, because if what's interesting is to think about a doctor in this time frame that's not using antibiotics, doesn't know if they're dealing with <clears throat> infectious disease or not. You are going into someone else's home where sickness dwells. You are on the front line of death. <laughs> and he's saying the care of souls yeah. is more important than that. So the urgency of the situation would have been a very vivid image to his audience. Doctors are the ones who are on the front line next to the sick. It's not, they don't diagnose from a pad at a distance, teledoc or something like that. No, they're, they're in the room with you and they might take whatever. If it's confectious, they come home with it too. Yeah. So there's an element there to talk to pastors that yes, you attend to your flock, but there's also that you've got to attend to yourself as you attend to yeah. the flock yeah. so that you too are not affected by all these things. John, you were going to share something here a minute ago. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I was just picking up on... Um, you know, Todd had mentioned you younger guys don't maybe recognize that they're going to spend an awful lot of their time in soul care. And in all of our emphasis on the priority and primacy of preaching, uh, that <coughs> translates into uh, soul care in the private ministry of the Word, which I think is actually one of the reasons it was so appropriate Alfred Poirier delivered this particular lecture, because Alfred's a first rate, he means a fine preacher. But if preaching is done right, it's, it's, it's tearing up the soil in the soul, so that people are saying, I've got things I've got to address. And you know, like Alfred, we need pastors who can not only be in the pulpit, but move to that private ministry of the word who are really physicians of souls and can walk people through that, um, how they deal with what the word, the preached word stirring up in them. So when we emphasize the priority of, uh, and primacy of preaching, one of the things I like to tell the students is there's a lot of ministry downstream from the pulpit. Now, ministry is all downstream from the pulpit. The word preached leads everything, but there's a lot of ministry downstream from the pulpit. And the pastors have to be equipped for this art of arts, as it's referred to, to do, to do the private soul care. And Lloyd-Jones was an example of this. Uh, Lloyd-Jones would preach, and then he would go to his study, and a deacon would line people up, and they would go in, and the doctor, Lloyd-Jones, would would then address the issues that the preaching had stirred for them. And I think our pastors need to be equipped in that. If I might say one other thing, I think with the suffering part, as we were discussing that, sometimes we can look at suffering in pastoral ministry and think it's accidental. Okay, you're going to suffer because you're, it's, if, you, if, if we look at Paul in 2 Corinthians, it's actually part of the job description. It's one of the marks of the man of God, that you're suffering, you live in a Christ-shaped life. And so I think we need to be intentional about training pastors that suffering is part of your, your job. Um, so that emphasis on soul care 
is not divorced from the priority of preaching. It's actually, if, if you're doing what we, what we believe in preaching, you're going to have to do the soul care and you need to be equipped for it. And Alfred's just a classic example of it. That's Pete, great. can I read a yeah. little section yeah. here? Um, Please. Just because we're on this. Yeah. Uh, Alfred does a great job of this comparison of uh, medical science and, and the science of, of pastoring. And uh, he mentions that Gregory's brother was a doctor. So probably maybe mm -hmm. that's what he's got in mind. But here's, here's what Alfred said. I think it says it so well. He says, what is the power of science for the physician of souls, the pastor? What power of science must you as a physician of souls apply yourself to know that you may employ such science to lead others to God? Is it not the very mysteries of God, the mysteries of the gospel of his son? Indeed it is. That's just a great summation of what yeah. ministers, pastors have to commit themselves to. That's the power of what the Lord does in the application of the gospel in the church. That's great. So Todd, with that, uh, again, summary, he fled, he came back, and then he began to ask questions. What does a pastor do and what kind of man should a pastor be? So how does, how does he answer those questions as he's reflecting now? Post-sabbatical, he's coming back to face the reality? Well, he's, he's coming back and realizing, um, he, he talks about it this way, and the quote that, that he, he, he talks about, um, this is on page 101, where he talks about how the it's the, it's the transformation, the reformation of a whole church, preferable to the progress of a single soul. And so he, he comes back to the people of God. Um, he can't be just concerned with himself as a Christian. He has to be concerned with the whole body of Christ. We're not individuals in the sense that we're divorced from the church or apart from the church. There's a, there's a sense in which that we are part of something much greater. So he sees that his work there is tied directly to, as he thinks on Christ, um, he says it this way on page 101 of Alfred's work. For Christ also, when it was possible for him to abide in his own honor and deity, not only so far emptied himself as to take the form of a slave, but also endured the cross, despising its shame, that he might by his own sufferings destroy sin and by death slay death. So he sees his ministry, as we've been talking about, cruciform. Um, can we say Christiform? Mm -hmm. uh, he sees that the ministry of Christ is going to take him through, the, through Philippians 2.7. Uh, to work this thing out and in the, in, work it out in the context of the church. So it's as he's working through these questions, what he comes back to is not himself, but he comes back to Christ and his purposes, mm. not to himself and his own. Mm. And I think that's what drives him into the ministry. Um, and that's a good way to say it, yeah. drives him into the ministry. He comes back from this respite and Eastertide, um, I won't say triumphant, but definitely committed. Mm. Um, so, so here's the question, that, Scott, if you had a pastor and he just disappeared for four months and came back, would you welcome him or would you already have a search committee going on for the new guy? Well, since I'm Presbyterian, the search committee would have been almost constructed and you might be able to get to it. So when you're Presbyterian, you know, it takes months to get a committee. Yeah, you'd welcome him. Of course you would. Um, a man like that having, having struggles and then determining to... To, to ascend the pulpit, that's that's the man you want. So so as you think through, uh, John, and your care for pastors who are feeling the struggles and wanting to come back, to, what what advice would you give them as a, a guy says, you know, I, I really want to come back. I, I thought about fleeing, but it's such a daunting task. How would you encourage him to just say, take up your charge and serve? What, what would God's counsel would you give them? 
I think um, I think part of it would be, to, you know, what we just said is understanding that the suffering is part of the job description. There's really no, and, and it's part of it's part of uh, life in union with Christ as a Christian. So there's really nowhere you're going to go where there's not <clears throat> suffering. Uh, so the best place you could be is in the place of God's call as you steward whatever he ordains for you. I think the other thing I would encourage them to do is uh, if you have a, a congregation, you have leadership that, like Scott's describing who are willing to receive somebody who struggled or receive them back, is to be an example of gospel uh, renewal, gospel <clears throat> restoration to them. Uh, it's a way to, again, picture Christ and your dependence upon Christ. Um, and to focus on the main things in pastoral ministry. I, I think one of the challenges when pastors feel a broken, beat up, is you, you, the story can start to become you. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you want to do. Um, if there's been a crisis and you're being, you're being, you're being restored, um, celebrate the grace and then get on with the priorities of ministry uh, that, are, that, are mapped out, that are mapped out for you. Um, I think the temptation in, for a lot of pastors in the struggle is to get away from what Todd just said to us. This is not about me. This is about Christ's purposes and his people. Let's focus on that. That's great. All right, so each of you have a distinct discipline, and part of what we're called to do is to help prepare <clears throat> pastors for this job description. Mm -hmm. So I'd like each of you, from apologetics, church history, and pastoral preaching and leadership, just say, how is studying at Westminster in these areas going to help a guy to face that part of the job description, which is there's tough stuff ahead? Mm -hmm. Apologetics, how does it help you do that? Well, I think, um, you know, a number of ways, but one would be that we, we will recognize that opposition will come um, uh, from the outside for sure and, and from the inside. And, and I think any, any minister who thinks apologetics is not for the church needs to go back and think more carefully about apologetics because there's unbelief in the hearts of the people in the pews. And, and you just have to recognize that. So you're going to get opposition, number one. Number two... God tells us that his word is more powerful than any opposition that would confront us. So if our apologetic and our defense of Christianity is in conformity to what God has said, then the power is there to destroy the strongholds raised up against the knowledge Isn't of God. Isn't there a great book called The Battle Belongs to the, the Lord? The Battle Belongs to the Lord. Who wrote Somebody, that, by the way? Well, I don't know, but it's worth looking up. <laughs> but I think that is the point, isn't it? Our, our apologetic... I could go for a while. Our apologetic must not be in the first place philosophical. Our apologetic must in the first place be biblical and theological. And if it is in conformity to our theology, Reformed theology, then the Word of God is powerful enough to break these strongholds. And we trust Him in the midst of all of this, which doesn't mean every single time the opposition is gone, but it does mean the tools that we need to confront the opposition by God's grace are given to us and therefore can overcome whatever opposition there is. Mm -hmm. Our apologetic has to be fundamentally, thoroughly rooted in Scripture and in Reformed theology. If it is, no attack. Is, there's, mm -hmm. Look, unbelief cannot, cannot destroy God's truth. In any way, shape, or form. So, you know, let me. So I used to, I used to hear this 
from students sometimes. Now that postmodernism has said there's no meta narrative, what do we do? We tell them they're wrong. We, I mean, there are there are better ways to do that than what I've just said. But 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 people become afraid. But, but isn't that a meta narrative when you say there's <laughs> yes, no meta narrative? Exactly. Yeah. You, it's so you just I've I've heard people become afraid because of the reigning you know, view that's out there or views that are out there. Yeah. And I think what we have to do is, is first say, what does God say? And what he says is true. And then there's a way to take what he says and to interact, hopefully persuasively, with those who want to oppose it. <laughs> so the, the word of God is, God himself, because of his word, is fully capable of, of taking mm -hmm. on any opposition. And that's the reason students should come to Westminster right there, because they're going to learn how to do that. That's why I came. Okay, mm -hmm. that's great. How about you, Todd? How would you answer? Well, biblically, uh, the scriptures enjoin us over and over again to remember, which means it's a sin to forget. Um, it's a, it's, it, you will lose who you are and what you're about if you forget, or if there's things that you are culpably ignorant of. Um, and then further, more better than that, uh, in, in Proverbs, it gives us a positive duty, get wisdom. Now, you either get wisdom one of two ways. You either learn the hard way through your own problems and troubles in some ways, or you can learn from uh, the challenges and uh, the challenges of others. And getting wisdom is about learning to think through problems biblically. Um, it's about bringing, uh, it's bringing your circumstances under the purview of the Word of God, and then realizing historically, this isn't new. This isn't new. Um, the tyranny of forgetting is that you you lose perspective on who you are, what you are, and what has happened. And so the idea that Christians have somehow not endured struggling, or my struggles are somehow greater than others, mm. or there have been, you know, yes, there were times of persecution in the past, but my persecutions are yeah. much worse. Yeah. You can lose yourself in that. And so it's important for our own well-being, but also for our faithfulness, that we remember that we're not alone. Yes, so so a faithful witness is, is, is building off of a historical remembering. What's the difference between the church militant and the church triumphant? Oh, well, the church militant is the one that's still, um, is the pilgrim. Uh, the language of our good reformed forebears was that uh, the, the, if you're going to talk about the ecclesia militans, you have to talk about the weator. You have to talk about the stranger, the pilgrim in this life that is in desperate need of scripture. Um, the church triumphant, of course, is the church celebrating in heaven at the end of days. So there's a there's a wonderful point that in the church life of the wayfaring pastor and stranger, you can go to this time period, you can go to many periods, any period of Christian history, and find this sort of issue mapped out into the life of the church in some way. So the historical comment here is, you're not alone, uh, which is where pastors sometimes feel in the middle of conflict. And there is hope and there is help, first in the Word of and God and in the Word of God. But then also God has put you among a, a college of brothers, a fraternity of brothers in the church. There are other pastors who are doing the exact same thing that you are too. It's, a, it's necessary and important. It's one of the beauties of Presbyterianism and it works and functions well, is that you're, in a, you're among brothers and elders and fellow, fellow mm -hmm. co-workers and co-laborers in Christ. You're not meant, you were never meant to bear the ministry alone. You can't. I think the uh, the image was given by, as Chuck Colson uses, probably not original with him, but he, he said, 
Uh, D-Day has happened. It's an mm -hmm. extraordinary invasion of Vic but the victory in Europe has not occurred yet. Mm -hmm. Sure. We've got a long, difficult that's battle right. ahead. There's a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's the age between the incarnation and the final coming of. So we're not glorified yet. Yeah. Okay. John, what would you say? Your discipline. Well, you had to go to D-Day for me, right? <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was a preparation for the ILS military history, right? Well, you know, I think about those men that stormed uh, the beaches on D-Day. They weren't there out of a career choice. Oh. And I think we have to train pastors. This is not a career choice. This is a calling. That's good. And while we want to be professional, this is not a profession. I think we need to restore to the pastoral office the sense of identity as what Paul calls Timothy twice, the man of God, that you're God's man with God's word to lead God's people through the preaching of the word. So I think pastors embracing their identity, not as a, not as a professional. I think one of the ways that, uh, pro to be professional, but not a professional, I think one of the reasons that the, the, the kind of dynamic we're talking about here occurs is men get into the ministry thinking it's the ecclesiastical equivalent of um, becoming, you know, what other professions they see around them and then realize this is not the same thing. And disappointment, hurt, wounds, uh, fuel, they're not the exclusive cause, but they fuel the kind of um, problem that you're describing. So I think recovering identity of the man of God. The second thing I would say is uh, to recognize, um, so just recently uh, we were at Caesarea Philippi where Peter makes his confession. And, and uh, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, as we all know, gates are not offensive, they're defensive. And I think we have to recover for the man of God the sense that he is leading the church on the mission with the word that will prevail to storm the gates of hell for the glory of God and the eternal good of multiple souls. And then finally, I think the church triumphant comment, I think for pastors to set their eye on the prize at the end, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's not looking at how his stewardship is assessed here. He's looking at how the Lord will assess his stewardship at the end. And so I think we need to equip men with that kind of a perspective. They're the man of God with the word of God, leading God's people on, on Christ's mission. And their view is the glory of God at the end of the battle. That's great. All right, three questions that were asked, right? We talked about why did he flee the ministry? Number two, what does a pastor do and what kind of man should he be? And now that brings us to his third question. So, Todd, who is the man worthy of this call according to Gregory of Nazianzus? <laughs> Well, what, what he's going to tell you, um, what's, what's so interesting in this is that he, he starts talking about what is the nature of soul care and what kind of person this is going to be. Um, and what he gets into is actually he walks through a, a basic outline of systematic theology. Uh, he tells you what the essential doctrines are. He tells you that we need to, uh, we need to talk about uh, what our original creation was. We need to talk about the final restoration. He talks about the, the types and shadows in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New. And then he talks about the first and second coming of Christ, the incarnation, the sufferings, the resurrection, the last day. So what's interesting here is that for Gregory to do care of souls, he wants someone who is rock solid on, on, on Bible. That counseling apart from the scriptures, you're not doing proper care of souls. And on the other hand, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do the preaching well, you've got to have an eye towards those care, those souls under your care. You, you, they're not divorced. 
So there's a there's a wonderful point here that the that the the person that you're dealing with is someone who's going to leverage all of what the, what Gregory calls the power of this science. Um, he's going to leverage all of those things for the care of the souls in front of him. So it's a person that's committed. I mean, you have to remember in this period, um, <clears throat> up through the second and third centuries, you've got you have people that are at saying things like this. Why do you believe what Christian? What do you believe? And there's another phrase some frequently, and for what are you willing to die? There's your call that the Christian life may cause you to suffer. Mm -hmm. But it's something that's, well, worth it. So I think for Gregory, he would start by, with that basic realization of what it is to be a Christian. And then as you have this eye towards what does it mean to be a part of God's... There's a um, passage that I want to also read here. If I can uh, do justice to Alfred's lecture, hmm. he says, So then who is the man? This man who knows systematic theology, who's going to follow Christ. Mm -hmm. He said, Who's the man worthy to take up this call of God? It's the one who hearkens but pays no heed to these names, the titles and powers of Christ, God, the Son, the image, the word, the wisdom, the truth, the light, the life, the power, the maker, the king, the head, the law, the way, the door, the peace, the righteousness, the servant, the shepherd, the lamb, the firstborn before creation, the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection. Who is the man, although he has never applied himself to nor learned to speak the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery, yet will joyfully and eagerly accept his appointment as head of the fullness of Christ? And that this remarkable summary of all of Christ and his glory, asking the question, who's the man that deals with this? And he says, and this is Alfred, and as if throwing up his hands in defeat, shattered and subdued by the immense weight of God's call to the pastorate, Gregory finally answers, who is the man that's worthy? No one. Mm -hmm. No one is worthy. No one is fit to be a pastor. That's right. I said, close down the seminary. There's none of us <laughs> that can do this job. <laughs> But yet he wants us to do the job. Yeah. So how do we deal? That's almost like a uh, antinomy there. Yeah. How how do we answer that, Scott? I'd love each of you to address it. So. Yeah, it's per I think it's perfectly put. Um, that's what we have to recognize when we're involved in ministry that we're not involved because the Lord looked down on us and said that guy's really good. He's he's so gifted. Look at all the things he could do. Um, we're we're not worthy. And the one who calls us is worthy. And so if we're called, our focus has to be on the one who calls rather than the one who is called. And that's I think that's a hard thing for ministers and, and pastors to, to do on a day-to-day -day basis because when you're personally attacked, you're going to start looking inward. And, mm -hmm. and what, you, what you're meant to do is to take it for what it is. You have to take it seriously, but always look outward to Christ. It was perfectly attacked. I mean, what's, what does the Lord say about himself? They hated me without a cause. Pastors are going to be hated sometimes without a cause, and and um, that's the way Christ was treated, and He was perfect. So we're not worthy. Christ is worthy. We serve. That's good. What would you say, Todd? If we do focus then on the worthiness of Christ, and uh, and that is what is on display, you see now now the question has shifted: uh, Is it really about us on display, or is it about Christ on display? And when you lose sight of when you lose sight of self and you put the focus on Christ, both in the preaching of the Word, and you put the focus on Christ in the life of your church, and that we all come to Him for grace and for life, then the pastor can be received, uh, even among his flock and for himself, he can be received as, I am, I am but a laborer. 
<laughs> I am a son and I'm I'm serving here, but the focus is where it should be. It's on Christ. Um, and that's that's how you that's where you find your worth. We know the answer to this question. I mean, if if you know where is your worth as a person, and you say you say, well, it's Christ. Where is your worth uh, in your home and in your family? Where do you derive your value? Well, from Christ. So why would it be any different for if that's our answer in our homes and our families? What would be the answer before our churches? What is the worthiness of a minister before this congregation? Well, it has to be Christ. Um, uh, and so we evaluate it along those lines, our responsiveness to him. John? Well, I think we're all given the same answer in different ways. Uh, and I, I think you have to come to terms with it. Uh, I love the way Alfred put it. Um, no one. Hmm. Um, and again, perhaps the way the Lord has blessed us in the West, um, it can be easy in a certain way to get into being a pastor. And... But when you're in situations like what Todd was describing, or we know of our, our brethren in other parts of the world, um, you know what the cost is and how hard it is to be a pastor. Uh, I, I think um, recognizing our, not just that we're, we're, we're first sons before we're servants and that we're resting in Christ, but how dependent we are on the spirit that Christ gives. Mm. You know, what did Paul say to Timothy? You know, he says he's, he's given us the spirit of discipline and a sound mind and um, to deal with his timidity and to deal with his reticence for what he had to do. So I, I think part of depending upon the sufficiency of Christ is depending upon uh, the spirit whom he's given to us for the potency to do what we can't do ourselves. And I think pastors have to come to the, I can't do this, but he can. Um, and that's where he wants to drive us, and he'll use suffering to drive us there. So I think that's part of looking away from ourselves to Christ is to depend upon him to do by his spirit within us what we can't do ourselves. That's great. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Right. And then Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm nothing, but he's everything. Yeah. Alfred uh, puts it this way, and with that, Gregory steps forward, however unfit, he is an unworthy to pastor. He steps forward and answers God's clear call on his life. And like Isaiah of old, ends his defense saying, Here am I, my pastors and fellow pastors. Here am I, thou holy flock, worthy of Christ, the chief shepherd. And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Lord, if you called, here am I. I'm unworthy, but you can use me. So you're inviting folks to study at Westminster to become pastors. Is Amen. that right, John? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're unworthy, but we want them. Yeah, and we're and we're, and we're going to be un, we're we're unworthy uh, to be training you to do it because we're going to lean on Christ together, and we're going to try to give you Christ from the Scriptures to equip you for the works He's created you for. Okay. So, as a church historian, what what else should we think about Gregory of Nazianzus? Is he should he be up there with John Calvin as one of our great heroes, or is he just one we need to know? Where does he fit in the, well, forgive the word, the pantheon of greats of, of historical sure. theology? Uh, sure, in the display case, as it were. Um, <laughs> well, you know, uh, Alfred brought this up very well. Um, he points out that as Augustine is in the West, so Gregory is in the East. And I think that might help frame it for us. Um, his value is not just simply because of the orthodoxy that he proclaimed. But so the faithful orthodoxy they proclaimed. But in proclaiming the orthodoxy, as far as we know, he was faithful. So 
some of our folks will say, I had no idea that the East had someone that loved Jesus so much. What does that tell us about church history in the Bible? Well, the Church of Jesus Christ is very big, <laughs> and we, we uh, only know a portion of it. Uh, so it's a it's a tremendous it's a tremendous thing, and you know, go read. I mean, these look. It's been long out of copyright, Gregory writing in the fourth century. So you can get it online for free um, in multiple languages. So it's not like this is an obscure text that you can't find somewhere. Um, you can search a second oration of of, of Gregory of Nazianzus and find it, um, and it's worth a read. It's worth your time. Um, there is help for pastors here. Uh, there's encouragement. You know, I'll close you with this. If you if you think that the East and the, the ancients uh, were not in, in using Scripture very much, uh, Alfred has it here when he when he reads through this text. He says that um, when you find this particular little work, uh, Gregory's defense of his flight. It consists of only 117 paragraphs, just a little over 19,000 words. But in this, there are over 430 specific Bible verses cited or wow. phrases used, 243 from the Old Testament and 195 from the New Testament. Wow. So apparently, pastors that are faithful use the Bible, I guess is one way to put it. <laughs> That's great. Well, as we uh, wrap up, I, I, you know, I'm just so thrilled with this trilogy of articles that we've had a chance to engage they, they're past, present, and futurally relevant because yeah. God's Word is timeless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter where you come along. If you're dealing with God's Word and you're trying to do the work of Christ and His church, we have this treasure trove of wisdom that's all around us. And it's one of the great things about Westminster and what a joy it is mm -hmm. to work with you guys because you love Jesus and you want to be scholarly and you want to see His church flourish and you want to pass all of this treasure on to the next generation so they'll do far better than we ever have. That's right. That's a great place to work. So, Pastor John, I'm going to look to you. What your, what's your final thought? And you close us in prayer, would you? Well, my final thought would be, uh, as we're entrusted with this heritage rep represented in these lectures, is that uh, we need, for the next generation, a whole army of men of God. Mm -hmm. We need a whole army of preachers and pastors who care for God's people so that they tend their souls and who have the courage to lead God's people in the world in which we're. So uh, at your invitation, I think I'll close in prayer for us. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the godly heritage that you have given to us, represented uh, in the authors of these lectures and in uh, pastors throughout the history of the church. Thank you for the privilege we have of the trust of imparting to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we'd pray that for your glory, you would raise up a new generation of pastor teachers, men of God, who love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind, and who love their neighbor, God's flock, the lost, in their neighborhoods and amongst the nations. And Lord, we pray that insofar as you've given us a stewardship here, that you would make us faithful and effective. We pray for each uh, pastor, each one who is considering a call to the pastorate who might see uh, this conversation and hear this conversation. And would you, our God, uh, encourage, equip, comfort, correct where necessary, and would you place the call on all those that you would have steward this art of arts and calling of callings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.